And you always find nice arrangements of your songs. Appreciate that. There you are. wonder what happened to you. A man wanted to join a church in his neighborhood that he thought looked like a friendly place. So he inquired about becoming a member. He was told he needed to be interviewed at this church by a board of Well, he was startled. He didn't know a lot about the Bible. He just really wanted to join this church. It looked like a friendly place. So he hesitantly answered, I like the New Testament best. And they asked, well, what book in the New Testament do you like the best? So he said, the book of parables? And they said, well, share with us one of your favorite parables. So he began rather uncertainly, uncertain, uncertainly, and he said, it came to pass in a galaxy far away that a sower went out to sow seeds. And he came down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among thieves, and the thorns grew up and choked him. Then he met a woman sweeping her house for a lost coin, and he slew her with the jawbone of an ass. And getting in his chariot, he drove furiously, and as he was driving along under a big tree, his hair became caught in a limb and left him hanging. The ravens brought him food to eat and water to drink. And the evening and the morning were for six days, but the seventh day was a Sabbath. And one night, while hanging there asleep, his wife Delilah came and cut off his hair, and he fell on stony ground. And it began to rain, and it rained forty days and forty nights, and he hid in a cave, and he said, I was naked and afraid, so I hid. He then came to Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, and he saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. When she saw the man, she laughed and said, throw her down out of there, and they threw her down. And he said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, and they threw her down seventy times seven. And the fragments which they picked up filled twelve baskets full. Now whose wife will she be on the day of the judgment? The man stopped with his free-form rambling, and he looked at the stunned membership committee. They sent him out of the room so that They could discuss his potential membership. And when they called him back in, they said they were very impressed by his vast knowledge of the Bible and agreed that he would make an excellent candidate for membership. And he was voted in unanimously. Well, the man did know a lot of Bible facts, I guess, but they were all mixed up in his head. But what is it exactly that we need to know. What is it exactly from the Bible that we are supposed to gather? Now, many of you were raised, as Kathy mentioned in her defining moment, raised in an Adventist home. So many of you were raised in a Seventh-day Adventist home, or at least you, uh, you came to Sabbath school, or some of you maybe weren't raised with any church, or maybe some of you went to Sunday school. All of our backgrounds are varied, but some of you have knowledge about the Bible. That's one thing, in my opinion, that Seventh-day Adventists do well. It's their young children's Sabbath school. When you get out of Sabbath schools, when you're about 12 or 14, 
boy, you could know your facts about the Bible, the days of creation, and who was the son of this, and who did this and that. Well, it raises a question, is that the way to make use of the Bible? Is it a way to gather facts? Is it knowing the facts? Can you be a, quote, good Christian without knowing the Bible? Can you be a good Christian without reading the Bible? Now, many of us here, I'm sure, in a group this size, read the Bible every day. Some of you probably read a daily devotional every day. Some of you read the Bible occasionally, and some of you probably don't read the Bible at all. That's just the way it is. And some of you feel guilty about whatever you're doing, that you should be doing whatever it is more or differently. Religion always carries with it a, a, a fine measure of guilt. And I don't know why, since Jesus came to remove our guilt and our shame. Amen, preacher. Oh, amen myself. Today we begin a new series entitled Empowered Living. And this series, I hope, will demonstrate that Oh, I like that. That's good. This series will demonstrate that the Bible provides not just facts, but the Bible provides answers to the most basic and essential questions of life that we have, and it gives us strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow, as the song said. We are empowered not just by the facts from a book, but we are empowered for living. So the Bible gives us perspective to understand the world in which we live from God's point of view, and then it gives us power to live our daily lives in 2020. And speaking of 2020, Miss Martinez told me via mental mind link-up and a text that the next time we'll have five Sabbaths in February is 2048. How many of you want to be around in 2048? I do. So some of you kids, you're not even shaving yet. By 2048, you'll be talking about the good old days. How it was when you were a kid. That's a long time. So how does the Bible, the Holy Word of God, fit into the life of the church? How does it empower us for living? Now, I would suggest that the primary purpose of the Bible is spiritual transformation. The redemption of the heart and the mind and the life. The Bible does not just tell us facts about God, though I love my facts, but the Bible is also the place where we encounter God and our lives can be changed. We don't get into the Bible, but the Bible gets into us. Interesting scripture. So I guess I still got to ask this, even on a sermon about the Bible. Is it all right if I read my Bible in church? If you could turn to Luke chapter 10, just a short little story that's very interesting, mainly for one word that I want to point out. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 28. Where am I? I just ordered glasses the other day, ladies and gentlemen, so perhaps next week you might see me in glasses. In fact, the, the eye doctor, I told him I was a pastor, and he made me stand. He goes, now how far down is your pulpit? Because he was trying to figure out. I go, no, I don't mind holding it like this. 
chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Now that's not a lawyer like the lawyers we have. This is someone who knows the law, the law of the Bible, knows their Bible. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. So it even tells us why this guy did this. He's trying to test Jesus. And he said, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, of course, remember I mentioned how many, Je- how many questions Jesus asks in return. Here's one of them. He, meaning Jesus, said to him, meaning the lawyer, he said to him, what is written in the law? Here it is. How do you read it? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said unto him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. It is interesting that to the question, what can I do to be saved? Jesus replied, how do you read the Bible? This is a profound and remarkable statement that Jesus himself is tying up your spiritual health to your spiritual knowledge related to how you read the Bible. And yet it is possible to spend time, as I mentioned, knowing Bible facts or memorizing ten proof texts to prove a doctrine that you believe in and not notice how powerful a book it is as a moving, sweeping piece of literature. Nowhere in literature are there such powerful opening words to any book as, in the beginning, God. These powerful words set the stage for everything, and they foreshadow all of the great biblical themes. From the beginning, without any explanation or introduction, God is there. It doesn't say where did God come from or did somebody create God or how old is God or is there a rock that God could make that God couldn't also lift. It just says in the beginning God. And from the very beginning God is a creator. From the opening words of Genesis down to Revelation creation is proclaimed as one of God's main attributes. More than anything the Bible predicts God as a God who makes things. He makes things in all of their splendor. And the Psalms, for example, never stop talking about it. Psalm 148 says, Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens, and all your waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded, and they were created. God can speak things into existence. And after creating the world, he created man and woman on the sixth day. And it's very interesting that after the fall, after Adam and Eve sinned and hid, and God went to find them, God took the action to reach out to them. The first thing that God did was he created again. Because it says that he made for them garments of skin, And he clothed them. So the first thing that God did after the fall in his act of redemption was to create something else. He created for them skins. 
to help them realize how salvation took place. And the rest of the Bible is a record of God's endless efforts to restore and to redeem His creation to Himself, to clothe it again in the glory that He created for it in the beginning. He created a people, Israel, to be a blessing to others. They misunderstood it and thought that they were created to be the blessing rather than to share that blessing with others. He raised prophets to guide and to direct people when they strayed away. Reluctantly, he gave them a king. He didn't want them to be a king. He gave them a king. And when his people abandoned them, he continued to pursue them. Even like he says in the book of, Isaiah, of Hosea, he says, how can I give you up? I love you. And then when the people continued to fall away, he came to earth himself in the fleshly person of Jesus himself. A second Adam, the book of Romans calls him, who was human, yet in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, as Colossians 1.19 says. Listen to those words again. In Him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Finally, having funneled down to that single person, the whole entire vast creative process is funneled out again from Jesus to 12 disciples to other people who become changed and reborn people so that on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell, 3,000 people were baptized on the day of Pentecost and the body of Christ now takes shape. He continues to create. He creates a church. Human beings who are equipped and empowered with the Holy Spirit to create a new way of living. The body of Christ. The church of God. And I have news for you. That includes you and me. We are part of the body of Christ, which is His church, with Jesus being the head. And he paused and drank water. Through the stretch of time, through creating and recreating, God works with his creation, his people. Until at the end of the Bible, John proclaims in Revelation 21, one more act of creating that God will do. <coughs> Excuse me. And he says, behold, I make creating. I make all things new. And even with the word still on his lips, down comes the new Jerusalem like a bride from heaven adorned for her groom. Thank you, Carol, because those are beautiful words of Scripture, my friend. In Genesis chapter 1, you have God creating, and in the end of the book, Revelation, you have God creating again, recreating, paradise restored, that which was broken, fixed up. And in between, from Genesis to Revelation, you have God pursuing a fallen people. A people who rise, a people who fall, a people who lie, a people who cheat, a people who return, a people who repent. Does that sound familiar? You see, it is this book 
hold-up book I put in my notes. It is this book, the Bible, with its incredible story that should be our textbook, our inspiration, our guide, a lamp unto our feet, a spiritual GPS, a life-giving source, and a reminder of God's will and God's love for His people. And it's not only God who stands out in the Bible, it's the cast of characters, it's the, the misfit mob of humanity that he creates. There's some very interesting people in the Bible. Some of them are totally diabolical. And some of them are incredibly loving. And some of them are just plain old, foolishly, ridiculously stupid with the things that they do. Does that sound familiar? Look at your neighbor. That stupid part, that was... Look at the, the people in the Bible. And that, that's why it always is surprising to me when people say that the Bible is a made-up book. If it was made up, would you make such interesting people in there? Wouldn't everybody be like really good following God or something like that? You have patriarchs, you have judges, you have kings, you have peasants, you have priests, you have men and women like you and me. But of course, the main character in the Bible is God Himself. Because the Bible is God's book. The Bible is the Word of God. The Word about God and God's Word about Himself. It is the eternal Word of God to others. And we come to know God through His own words and actions. We see Him speak worlds into existence. We see Him stoop to breathe life into Adam and perform surgery on Adam to create Eve. We see God call Abraham and tell him to look up at the stars and that he will make his number of offspring as numerous as the stars. He tells Moses that he's jealous for his people. He answers Moses in thunder, yet he speaks to Elijah in a still, small voice. He speaks at the baptism of His own Son, Jesus, and says, Be quiet and listen to My Son. And yet at the crucifixion of that Son, He is totally silent. And when Jesus comes in the New Testament, He is called the Word. He is called the Logos, is the Word. He is the all in all. He is everything that's needing to be said about God is found in Christ. Jesus is the Word of God made flesh. These are muy importante doctrines for us to know and understand. Because people sometimes doubt that Seventh-day Adventists are true Christians and believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. We do believe that. We, I'll, I'll answer for myself, that I think that that's, that is what this book teaches. That Jesus was fully God and fully man. He is the Word of God made flesh. He even said it Himself. And that's why I believe it. He said, if you have seen Me, you have seen the Father. And one of my favorite verses, 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, all of God's promises are yes in Jesus. 
if we had one word to think about how Jesus feels about you, that word would be yes. Look at my son. Look at my daughter. With them I am well pleased. Maybe not every action that you do, everything you say, but he loves you because you're his, not because of what you do. It was by speaking his creative word into the darkness that God on the first day brought forth light, and it is by listening to the holy word and allowing change to come that you and I can learn how to speak and listen to one another to go beyond merely hearing the words, but to be there for each other, to build community, to build fellowship. And out of the darkness of our separate lives, the light can come in and we can live in community. We can live empowered in 2020 to be supportive of each other and those people around us so that the world is not such a terrible place in every corner of it, that where you are and where I am, it can be a good place, that there can be some goodness in this world. So I don't want you to know the Bible just because it's a book or just because you knowing the Bible and showing up here keeps me employed. I don't really care about that. I want you to know this because in this you find a God who can fill you and live out his life through you and let other people know about how good God is. And despite all the variety and the odd turns and twists that the Bible takes, the Bible is held together by a single plot. God created the world, the world gets lost, and God relentlessly seeks to restore the world to the glory for which he created it. It's the relentless pursuit of perfection. It is the perfect God pursuing his imperfect children with perfect love. Well, that was good. I got to write that one down. Make a note of that, somebody. I can't remember it now. The Bible is a book about God's holy pursuit of his children. It's the book that holds us together. So any way you can get the Bible in your life, whether it's a, a daily devotional book or an app, that's all fine. Reading online. I'm old-fashioned. I'm old. I'm decrepit. I'm falling apart. But I think there's no substitute for having a real Bible that you hold in your hands and you mark it all up. Because it's your Bible. You mark it up and you know where things are and you've got yellow verses underlined here and red verses there and big sweeping things in the margin and things that your dad told you over here and you got bookmarks made by your son that he filed out of wood in there and it's just your book. It's your Bible. There's no substitute for that. But as I mentioned, I'm old and decrepit and that's just the way it seems to me. Because if your Bible's falling apart, then that means that you're not falling apart. And that means that it's the Bible that holds us together. We as a church need to always make sure that we are an empowered biblical community, that our beliefs, that our doctrines, that our fellowship are empowered and on, built on the foundation with the Bible as our rule and as our canon. That's where that word comes from. Canon means rule, something that you measure 
everything else by. You ever hear that Uncle Arthur story called The Measuring Rod? Stand up against the measuring rod. Does nobody here know Uncle Arthur? Come on now, thank you. I wasn't even in the church when I was a kid. We as a church, and I've told you this before and I'm going to repeat it. If I'm your pastor, every sermon, Every belief, every action we do, as much as I have anything to do with it, will be based on the foundation of the Bible. I, don't, I believe in psychology and all those other things. They're wonderful things. I believe in the human experience. But this can empower us to live our lives according to the principles within this book. And that's the way I want to pastor, and that's what I'm going to preach to you. This has been the strength of God's people, and especially the Seventh-day Adventist Church, since our church began. Now, here's the closing illustration. So you can pick up your stuff. You can wake up the person next to you if you need to. The last general conference that Ellen White, who was one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, ever went to was in 1909. If you know anything about the life of Ellen White, she was born in 1825, so in 1909, help me with the math, carry the three, subtract the two, divide. She was about 83 years old. So you had an 83-year-old leader of the church who'd been in the church since 1844, going from California, where she lived, all the way across country to Washington, D.C., by the cars, if you read her books, by train. So she'll say, we were riding in the cars. She doesn't mean a Buick or an Oldsmobile. She means a train. So she went across country by train and she ends up in Washington, D.C. in 1909 to attend the General Conference, which happens every five years now. I don't know what it was back then, but it's the, the meeting of all of the Adventists around the world to decide things like changes or policies, those kind of things. It's also a worshipful experience as well. It's a, it's a big deal. So she had seen the Adventist church grow from 50 Sabbath-keeping Adventists in 1846 to 80 3,000 Adventists at the end of 1908. So she's at this 1909 general conference session. She's 83 years old. She's one of the church leaders. And on the last meeting of this general conference session, which probably lasted about a week, on the last meeting, the last day of meetings, the very last meeting, she was the keynote speaker. I like that. She was the main speaker. So she stood up. And with a voice that was touched with deep emotion, she assured the minister and other workers that God loved them. And that Jesus delighted to make intercession in their behalf. And many of the people were deeply moved. And then she said this, Brethren, we shall separate for a little while. But let us not forget what we have heard at this meeting. Let us go forward in the strength of the Mighty One considering the joy that is set before us of seeing His face in the kingdom of God and of going out no more forever. Let us remember that we are to be partakers of the divine nature and that angels of God are right around us, that we need not be overcome by sin. Let us send our petitions to the throne of God in time of temptation and in faith lay hold of His divine power. I pray, God, that this may be the experience of each one of us and that in the great day of God we shall 
we all may be glorified together. She moved away from the desk, as it says in the book that I was reading. She moved away from the desk and she started to her seat and then she came back. She walked over back to the desk, the pulpit, and she picked up the Bible that had been there that she had been using and she held it out. And she said these words, and this is what I want you to hear. She said, brothers and sisters, I commend unto you this book. (laughs) That's it. Brothers and sisters, thank you, my friend. I commend unto you this book. So there in her last words to the leaders of the world church, Ellen White elevated the word of God. The word that had been so precious to her over her 70 years of ministry that she had freely used and ever kept before the church and the world. And like her, I would say to you, brothers and sisters, I commend unto you this book. Because it is in this book, this Bible, that we find life. We find Jesus. We find the loving hand of God bringing people together and empowering them to live in their time for Him. Now there's many distractions in our world today that tell us that this is okay or that's okay or go here or go there or you don't have to do that or you don't have to do this or this is important whether it's how many people you have following you on Instagram or this thing over here or you should eat like this or drink like this whatever it is there's all of these things pulling on your time and on your interests and on your values and I'm telling you that this is our source of living in today's world people might think you're you're square or old-fashioned or stupid or silly. It doesn't really matter what other people think as if you do what you feel called to do. So if you want to live for God today, if you feel like the world is turning so quickly and there are so many things out there that seem to have no worth and no value and you long for direction and strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow, then I would encourage you to start with the Bible. And in that Bible, you will find a God that loves you, a Savior that came for you, and a Holy Spirit that wants to change your life and empower you to live. So brothers and sisters, I commend unto you this book. Pray in that precious name, dear Jesus, precious name. We thank you for coming to earth in all the fullness of the Godhead and that all of God's promises are yes in Christ. We pray that you would take ourselves as we are and love us to become all that we could be. We pray for the Holy Spirit to fill us and change us. We pray you'll work miracles in our hearts, in our lives, in our homes, in our schools, at our work, with our children, with our parents, with our grandparents, with our finances. May you do all things according to your will and for our good, so that in the end we'll say thank you for living my life and leading my life the way you did. I would not have had it any other way. Just bless us, Lord, as we live today, as we open the word, and we... uh, grow in grace and knowledge. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.